Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. This is the second part of episode 63, which was all about liminal RPG. It's not an extra. It's uh, more like a a neat, thin, hardback supplement which is beautifully illustrated with a concealed packet of scampi fries if you care to look. Yes, this time we're returning to the world of urban fantasy and folk horror, the distinctly British form of hauntology inspired by the weird and wonderful in both urban and the natural world. Before we get into that, we've had another review on Apple Podcasts. If you've not heard the podcast before, I often think that these reviews do a better job of describing the podcast than I can. This is from Marcus Neho. This feels like settling in with old friends for a cosy conversation in the pub about role-playing games. And that northern humour oozes through the pores of this podcast, which is always friendly and inclusive, and their earlier experiences certainly resonate. Difficulty finding gamers? Check. Deep freeze? Check. Always interesting and entertaining. I look forward to every episode of this. A gem amongst a slew of great RPG podcasts. You can even forgive the somewhat dodgy literary taste. Please, no more cock. Here's hoping that this podcast keeps going for a long time yet. Thanks for that, Marcus. All reviews are very appreciated as they're encouraging and help others find us. I have to say that if you're not a fan of Moorcock, then perhaps miss the next episode. But stay around this time for us to return to Liminal, or at least some inspiration for your Liminal games. I've just returned from a week away in London, And I'm always struck by the diversity of the city and how communities cluster in different pockets of the city and how there are layers and layers of stories around every corner in every underground station, from the magnificent buildings to the small ones, the discreet places tucked away behind walls and gardens. Walking through the city is immediately inspiring. I've also been reading Chaosium's new RPG for Rivers of London series of novels by Ben Aranovich. It's a light-touch application of the BRP rules, which are very easy to pick up and play. I like how the rulebook brings to life the Newtonian magic referenced in the novels. Combined, the city, the rules and the novels come together really well to evoke atmosphere and intriguing stories. And in my quest to find more urban fantasy to play, you'll hear more of Rivers of London in the future. However, why should the second city in England get all the attention? Manchester, which is just down the road from where I live, is a city filled with stories too. A city that gave birth to the industrial age, the computer, the modern chemistry and much, much more. And it's got its own share of stories. 
and I really want to populate the city with my own campaign. At the Grognard Files Book Club, we spoke to comedian, scriptwriter, podcaster and best-selling novelist C.K. MacDonald about his series of novels starting with The Stranger Times about a newspaper investigating the weird and wonderful based in Manchester. We talk about the inspiration of Manchester and some of the techniques that he used in the novels that I think are very applicable to games, such as Loon Day, where the journalists inviting eccentrics with stories to tell and that they relate them with a timer, like a, a speed date. I had a great time speaking to Keeve, and I'm sure you'll get a lot from listening to him. I was very careful not to include spoilers, in the hope that you'll read the Stranger Times novel yourself, or listen to the great audiobook. This podcast also features me and Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, down at the pub, the Lassagari, again in Manchester, reflecting on a more folk horror inspiration in the form of The Children of Stones, a children's drama first broadcast in the mid-70s. I'll be back at the end after some additional closing time chatter with some more information about forthcoming book clubs that you might want to attend. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Book Club! Welcome to the Book Club, the Grognard Files Book Club that meets on the first Sunday of every month. It's a Sunday school for geeks. Uh, this time we're delighted to welcome into the Zoom of role-playing rambling none other than Queeve McDonald. Hello there, Queeve. Hello, very nice to be here. I, I know where you're coming from because we could have probably done this on a bit of plastic cup and string. Uh, where in the world are you, uh, Queeve? Where are you broadcasting uh, I'm actually just uh, just outside Manchester, sort of in Stockport. I'm, I'm in between Stockport, Cheshire and Manchester. I'm right in the... Every which way you drive, there's a sign welcoming you to somewhere else. So we're right in the middle of the, between the three of them. And uh, Manchester uh, plays an important role in your books. Do, do you see it as an inspiration? Oh, yes, yeah, massive. I mean, it's this is kind of, you know, if you like my love letter to Manchester is these books, really. Um, because I've lived, I mean, here for, I think, 15 years. I'm terrible with dates. Um, maybe about a bit less than that. But yeah, so I, I've just really loved Manchester. And um, interesting, my wife, who's from uh, just outside London, uh, you know, like those people who say, you know, those people who join religions late in life and end up becoming more fundamentalist than anyone else. My wife is a Mancunian fundamentalist um, where uh, she used to literally uh, promote Manchester around the world as a business destination and stuff. And so she knows all the facts about Manchester. Like if anybody makes a, a dig about Manchester being rainy in conversation, I can see this little look at her face where she's about to give them the statistics um, because <laughs> it's only the eighth most rainiest city in Britain, by the way. That's 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 scientifically proven. I mean, that's a scientist who is having a very slow day, but it is scientifically proven. So, yeah, I love Manchester. I love the feel of the place. And, yeah, I think it. it I like to think of it as a character in the book. We'll, we'll definitely come on to that. You originate from uh, Manchester. So tell us a little bit about where you came from, because I think that's uh, an important part of uh, the kind of novelist you are. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean obviously Irish. Um, I was born in Limerick, but I was there for about three weeks. Uh, I just got the passport and then I'm, I've moved to Dublin. So, yeah, I mean, being Irish is a big part of my thing. Again, the Dublin I grew up in and Manchester, I always say, are remarkably similar places in a lot of ways. Things like um, just the music scene, arts being a big deal up here and stuff. I've lived in other parts of the country and it's not just it's not the same vibe. Like I really like Birmingham, but even mates of mine who run art stuff in Birmingham will tell you it's a lot harder to get stuff to happen there, whereas in Dublin and Manchester, it just always seems to have the 
if you do something and it's good, you can get people in and it does have that uh, feel to it where it will support these things. So, yeah, I mean, Irish, but I've lived over here now since, uh, God, nearly 25 years, the year 2000 when I came over to start stand up and to do writing courses and stuff like that. And I've I've been here pretty much ever since. Yeah, there, there is a lot of similarities isn't there, between uh, Dublin and Manchester in the fact that they're quite compact cities, aren't they? That nothing's too far away to walk, I think that. So. It's very true. I was actually in Dublin last weekend uh, for a certain rugby match. And yeah, I, it, was, it did occur to me because I walked around all the main bookshops in like an hour. And the same in Manchester, where we used to live right in the center of Manchester. I mean, it's basically used as a location. I don't know if it's in the novels, but it's definitely in. There's a an, a podcast, the Stranger Times podcast, which is full of short stories. And one of them is about um, the Christmas Blitz when Manchester, Manchester by and large didn't get bombed by the Germans, but it did for two days. It got a heavy bombardment for two days just before Christmas. And I wrote a story based on that, which actually Jason Manfred does in the in the podcast. It's all about the, the apartment building I used to live in is actually the base we use for it because it was like just an incredible... I did a, what actually turned it out. I did a ghost tour of Manchester with... I felt sorry for this bloke because it was my birthday. So it was all my mates. So I said, what do y'all do for a living? It was like, there's 12 standard comedians. Uh, and he was like, oh God, really? It's like, who else do you think's free at this time on a Tuesday? But yeah. So we did it. And that was one of the things that came up when he talked about the Christmas Blitz and, and how kids, basically teenagers, would stand on top of buildings. And their job was to kick off incendiary bombs because how bombing worked in World War II on both sides was you dropped incendiaries first because then when the city was on fire, you could see it. So uh, their whole job was to stop buildings going on fire. So I, that was one of the, the facts like that that I found in my Manchester research that ended up becoming a story because it's it's so, yeah, there's so many fascinating things like that. Let's talk about uh, Stranger Times because as I say, we've been uh, talking about it and discussing it this morning. So for anybody who's unfamiliar with it, do you want to give it a, a pitch? Yeah, it's uh, basically, it's a, it's a newspaper based in Manchester that, that reports the weird and wonderful news from around the world. Uh, and the idea is, it's kind of like the 14 times, which I'm sure a lot of you know in this group particularly. My idea was, as a, as an obsessive fan of them, I literally have two shelves full of them beside me here. I just like the idea of doing a kind of low-rent tabloid version of the 14 times. And I had this idea for years to the point where the, four, the Stranger Times is actually based on a sitcom idea I must have written. Actually, I was 16 years ago, probably now. I still haven't found, I keep trying to find the script of it, but I haven't found it yet. I, ha- I sort of wrote the whole thing. All the characters were sort of there. And yeah, it was based on that. And I liked the idea of, of, being in a newspaper that reports are weird and wonderful. And then I came back to it as a novel idea. And literally the, the moment of inspiration was, well, how will I handle this? What would be the thing with it? And it was like, well, they're going to have to find out that some of the stuff is actually true. So I kind of came at it from the newspaper. And then I built the world around the newspaper when I decided what I wanted to, to be. And I kind of hit on the idea early on that quite most of the myths and stuff that we know have elements of truth in them and all those sort of, so they're all sort of a different take on them, but they have different elements of truth in them. There's some good characters around uh, this uh, newspaper offices, but as readers, our way into it is through uh, Hannah Drinkwater. Sorry, Willis. And uh, she, how did you come up with her? And uh, why, why did you choose that as a character to kind of introduce this world? It's kind of when you're coming into a world like that, it's, it's, um, you have to be aware of the reader, you're trying to tell the reader what it is. And it's always, you know, I'm sure as you do role playing and all that, world building is massive. But you don't want to do dumps of it and stuff. So it's just a natural way of writing, I think, is you take somebody who's completely new to the world and you make them the eyes of it. And I like the idea of uh, I had the idea of a woman coming through a divorce and stuff like this and trying to restart her life. And she ended up in Manchester entirely by accident. 
and didn't know anything about the play. That's the great thing. You can put her in there. Literally, she knows nothing about it. So she can react to everything and she can, you know, be the, 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 not just the eyes, but the whole sensation for the reader where they can kind of follow her through it. A lot of the time in the first three books, that's kind of, we're kind of following Hannah. It becomes less and less as you start probably go through because you know the other characters, you follow them more as well. But yeah, she's definitely the way of introducing the world. I mean, the first three or four chapters of the book, I'd have to check exactly when it is, but. Um, all the stuff with the job interview, all the up to the point where um, Bancroft shoots himself in the foot. Vast majority of that was my memory of being in um, the sitcom script that I wrote. Because I basically wrote that script. My agent at the time had no interest in it. I don't know if she even sent it to anybody. My Dublin books, because I've written books under Queeve as well. And they were doing, thankfully, taken off at that point. And I had an agent and stuff. And they're like, well, do you want to do something different? And uh, at the time, I was genuinely trying to write a quote unquote serious crime book. And I had like, I mean, like I've always got pin boards and stuff. I had like a pin board in my, my office at the time with like eight or nine different serious crime books on it. And I woke up one morning and remembered the Stranger Times idea. And uh, sorry, my phone, my uh, watch keeps br- breaking in here. Uh, it just, I've got an Apple watch that so somebody have the same thing where they will just start talking to you when you're trying to talk <laughs> to someone else. But yeah, so I had, I literally had this idea for years. I'd kind of forgotten about it. I always remember I got up, got in the shower. Or something. Oh yeah, I remember that. I really enjoyed it. I, as, as my, my editor found this out, he thinks it's hilarious, but I always do most of my thinking in the shower. And um, I was literally thinking, oh, I really enjoyed that idea. And then I started walking through Manchester to get to my writing office at the time. At the time, I lived right in the center in that flat I was talking about earlier on. And it was a 25-minute walk. And what literally was one of those things, weirdest experience I had in my life in terms of writing was like, I was walking around going, it's here. It's based here. This is where that story makes sense. Like the actual, I put some pictures up on Facebook a while ago because people kept asking me. But the church that the the Church of All Souls is based, or All Souls is based on, is actually on my way to my office that's now a community center. It's been repurposed as a, but I literally had that one. Oh, that's that. And then it was like, I mean, the first few scenes in the book, there's a warehouse and stuff. That's up near where my old office was. It was all just came like to the point I was running up the stairs in my old creaky old office building by the time I got there to try and get all these ideas down. Cause it just sort of, it was the idea of the Stranger Times and the world of Manchester just came together beautifully for me. And I was really excited to write it then. And and it is dialogue rich, isn't it? And did, is that because it started a sitcom or is that the way that you think in terms of uh, creating uh, novels? That's honestly, that's very, I think that's the thing people point. I mean, I've done like 16 novels now between all the bunny books and the three strange times. And there's a fourth one already written now. Um, it's up. Dialogue is kind of my main tool in my box, really. When I don't know what's going on, I get people in a room and they start having a conversation. Um, and I do like it's big, character is big for me. And how you find out the characters is you get them annoyed about something. You get them in, you know, you, you don't want them to just sit there and tell you what they like and dislike. You want to get it into conversation and then mold themselves through. Like very random stuff will come up when I'm writing where I'll just have them go into a segue and I sort of leave it in. Sometimes I cut it out in the end, but it all ends up informing the character where they I find out their opinions because they literally just as silly as it sounds, they sort of they tell me. They literally just start telling me this. Well, you know, they start what I'm and dialogue I've always found quite easy to write. I guess I was writing scripts for years. I, I wrote a lot of scripts over the years. So I guess I think I always like when I started trying to write a novel, I had to learn how to write prose because I hadn't really done much of that. But dialogue and stuff was always there. Like that's the note I've I've had from every editor, which is I'm not going to tell you anything about dialogue. You know what you're doing. I'll just tell you about other stuff. So we observed that there's not a lot of uh, physical description of the characters, but they come alive through how they speak and, as you say, how they respond to uh, different there, things that happen to them. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. It's been um because it's to be honest, it was something I had was oh, I don't spend enough time talking about what people are wearing and buildings and stuff. And always my my wife, who's kind of my first editor, she runs our publishing company and stuff now as well, and she has an editorial background. But she went, You were out with the pub last night with like the three lads. I was like, Yeah, could you tell me what Addy and Marie are, are wearing were wearing at the time? I was like, No. I said, No, because you don't care. And it's yeah. genuine, it's just part it's not it's even not outside of being a writer. It's like I I spent most of my time in jeans and it or shorts and a t-shirt and you know it's like i'm not that's not something that really interests me so when i describe someone's clothing it's usually for a fairly good reason but i much prefer finding a different way because i just don't think clothes define people and even when it comes to like things and descriptions of buildings and stuff like that like i'm a massive fan of ben aranovich's work and i'm sure loads of people here know ben aranovich's work very well and one of the many things ben does brilliantly he gives very detailed descriptions of buildings and stuff like that and thing is a lot of the time when authors do that it's just a bit dull. Ben, I point out, Ben's isn't like that because Ben has a great way of writing that stuff. And I think he has a genuine fascination and interest in it that he manages to bring across brilliantly and it really adds to the world. But I think that's one of those things, I'm sure there's a few people here who are writing and stuff. I think one of the things I learned is don't try and be what someone else is as a writer. So like if Ben Aranovich is, is great at that, I, I, I'll do some of that, but I really don't, you know, if it's not something that comes naturally to me, I shouldn't try and force it in there because I think it comes across then as, as just dumping stuff in for the sake of it. So I think, yeah, whereas with me, dialogue is how I meet the world and, you know, how I let people find out. So that's the kind of the way I paint the the colours of the, the, the story, if you like. Yeah, just just one more thing on that dialogue. There's a lot of love for the audible version of this uh, book, uh, saying that the guy who does it makes it does a great job of uh, characterising the different uh, people in there. Yeah, Brent does an extraordinary job, and I'm a very lucky. Where actually, I've got the guy who does my other books, Morgan, is also very good. But yeah, I was. And Brendan, to be honest, shouldn't have, if I if I'm all honesty, he's a good mate of mine now, so I can tell you this. But um, literally, Morgan was going to do these books, and then Morgan had a health thing where he couldn't do them. And they went, oh, we'll just get another middle-aged white Irish guy. And we're like, oh, no, we don't. It doesn't need to be a middle-aged white Irish guy just because the other guy was a middle-aged white Irish guy. But they actually got Brendan stuff. And then they said, can you get, we actually said just on principle, can you get, we can we get some female voices and try to get some Mancunians and stuff like that? And we actually got other people in. But Brendan was just the best. Like we went, because there's a lot, that's the thing. I'm a nightmare for narrators because I put a lot of different characters. Like he has to do this Stella. Grace is based on uh, my mother-in-law, uh, including the West African uh accent and stuff so there's he had to figure out how to do all that stuff and i think the greatest compliment i can give him is is a mate of mine he's a mancunian as it comes and he texted me once and went this guy nails a mancunian accent perfectly and he really does um several people have said that to me at events and stuff like that but yeah he, he does he does an absolutely wonderful job um and uh weirdly as far as i'm concerned he should be working every week just doing audiobooks but he's bizarrely not being used that much by other people which i find bizarre when he's done that good a job so hopefully that's going to change are you a gamer have you uh, had experience uh, gaming yes uh if you if you look over there there's my painting station the uh so we can see over there there's some of the stuff i haven't painted yet i'll be honest with you i had to write the last stranger times novel i've just finished it but because we moved house and then stuff i had to write it quite quickly so it turned out when i was bored i only took up kind of the hobby seriously last year when i was bored i kept buying stuff on breaks from writing things and then they all showed up and i'm like I figured out during the week, if I paint like a Blood Bowl team or a thing a week or like a series of characters, I have enough stuff to paint until September. I really need to stop myself. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I started playing because I kind of went looking for a hobby last year and I've always enjoyed that sort of stuff and wanted to do it. But because it was a stand up 
your hours and your your schedule is a bit of a nightmare. You can't really do regular stuff. So I play um, Blood Bowl a lot. And um, I had my first game of D&D, would you believe, uh, three days ago. Because uh, I've been looking for a group for ages. So I had a go at that. And um, I'm really keen. I've got the I have the Rivers of London role-playing game. And I'm, I'm sort of getting into doing a lot, a lot more of that stuff now and exploring it. And maybe the Stranger Times at some point. I'd, I'd love the idea of doing it into some kind of a game. I don't know how that would work yet, but I'm enjoying the idea of, of exploring different avenues like RPGs and, oh, Zombicide is the other thing I've got, um, Zombicide Black Plague, because a mate of mine just turned 50 and he's a, he's a big zombie fan. He's uh, so much so he has a zombie room in his house where his wife just lets him put all the zombie stuff because people keep buying him zombie stuff. And she quite rightly doesn't want it around the rest of her lovely house. So there's a room in Gary's house, which is just full of zombies. And I got that as something to try and get him into a bit of gaming as well. I'm just going to make a note of that. Please, can I have a zombie room? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you need quite a big house, if I'm honest. <laughs> I mean, the two of them are both professional standard comedians doing pretty well for themselves, so they have enough room. But yeah, you, you need quite a big house for the zombie room. So you've had your uh, first game of D&D, so welcome aboard the uh, cult. You, any time that you um, had previously in your life is now going to evaporate um, before your very eyes. Um, <laughs> in uh, role-playing games, there is um, a current trend for... Um, games that are based in urban settings um, where uh, industrialised uh, worlds where uh, the fae and the fairies are, are taken off so as you mentioned Rivers of London's recently been uh, adapted we've got one called Vason which is set in um, Scandinavia and there's also a popular one a small press one called Liminal that explores that um, that space what do you think so appealing about it? One of the great things about Rivers of London is that magic lives side by side with our world, which I guess is, is obviously in my books as well. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's interesting. I think the idea that these things could be happening around you are in itself quite fascinating. Like I've used examples of stuff in the books. There's a, I don't know if anyone of the group, anyone who does know Manchester, I know the guy has a name. I can't remember it now. My wife is telling me, but there's a guy that goes, uh, cycles up and down Oxford Road in Manchester with a boombox with music playing so loudly that it's like you can barely hear what it is. It's so distorted. But, um, what I love and the most fun thing about certainly writing kind of urban fantasy stuff like that is, you can just take that kind of weird, wonderful thing in itself and you can go, oh, I could come up with a reason as to why he's actually doing that. Like, as in, in uh, there's a magical reason that he's warding something off or something. You can kind of take this weird stuff and re- change it around. And of course, the great thing, if you put it into an urban setting, like the great thing with Terry Pratchett books, which are, I, I, I've got in trouble with this because I did a top five list of my favorite Terry Pratchett books. And I didn't have any of the witches books in it, which I probably was wrong about. But my reason for that is really the thing I love most about Terry Pratchett books is Ankh Morpork. I think the city itself is incredible. The great thing with Terry Pratchett books is they, they reflect on humanity and you could talk about the world we live in by using that world. So I guess if you bring fantasy with an urban setting, you could also talk about the kind of lives we live more while obviously doing something completely different as well at the same time. And I think that mix is is probably appealing to people, hopefully. Yeah, I think the other thing we observed was something that you mentioned earlier, that where you've got um, urban decay in amongst urban renewal, the stories, isn't there, in the abandoned places and those uh, oh, yeah. canals and old buildings. Oh, yeah, especially when there's this fascinating stuff at Manchester, like there's there's um, canals that go on, like there's loads. It's kind of, actually, it's again similar with Dublin. I know this is quite similar to a few other places, but there's loads of canals that are buried literally under modern cities. 
um, that they're literally running through these these places. And there's a fascinating thing that ended up inspiring quite a lot with The Stranger Times, where there is a large cavern directly under central Manchester. I think it was used when ferries used to come in underground and, and stuff. But I think someone described it in the group thing was, it's the site, you could fit a cathedral inside it. Uh, and what's fascinating was, it was used, urban explorers used to go down there. Then I, I think a development company from China, I believe, bought a, a large tract of land in Manchester. And now there's this massive, they're not allowed in there anymore. And there's a massive cavern in the center of Manchester that no one knows what it's being used for. It's being used for anything. But that that kind of stuff is great. When I found that out with the ghost tour, like when I did the class, when I did the ghost tour with the guy, because it ended up being a really good way of finding out different things. And he was like, what kind of stuff do you want to know? Want me to tell you? It was like, literally, don't try and tell me anything you wouldn't tell somebody else. Because you'd be amazed at stuff that I will find fascinating. And like, that was something that I loved. And there's loads of different things like that. It was a great story I haven't used yet. But Manchester was part of a revolt at one point where, you know, they joined an army and they were coming down from the north and they got defeated, whoever they were fighting. I can't remember. But he did tell us at one point, he was like, they put heads on spikes, as they always did in olden times, to show people you know, what goes right if you dare go against the king. And he said, and those spikes were, uh, well, they're actually sort of just about there where M&S is now. That's where the spikes would be. Uh, and I have this lovely idea in my head because you know the exact spot. And I kind of went, so you can have the ghost of two heads on spikes sitting in the M&S cafe. And that was like <laughs> the idea that popped into my head, which I still haven't used, but I love it as a as a concept. So, yeah, I mean, there's all this stuff with cities and it is, you know, it's as you know, it's with cities themselves. It's you put a lot of people into a small space. Weird things happen. You know, there's, there's conflict. There's all this kind of stuff. Like I used to live in the center of Manchester. You'd see all kinds of weird stuff, not just people throwing up outside your apartment. Although that did happen quite a lot. So, yeah, a lot of st- stuff like that, where you should bring a lot together into a small place and just weird and wonderful things can happen. This is the first um, book I've read, and it's currently uh, three books. Is it planned to do more in this series? Yes, uh, yeah. we're signed up for three more. And I've, I've just, as I said, I just finished write, writing the uh, the fourth, which is called Relight My Fire. And the um, background of the, uh, the kind of fairy, the uh, were-creatures, is kind of hinted at, although not fully developed in the first one. Does that get developed further in the subsequent uh, novels and stories? Yeah. I mean, it sort of it sort of builds on that, and yeah. So we start building into the world because the whole point of the books is they don't know what's going on, um, and they kind of start discovering it. But um, it does certainly get built on. And in fact, um, something I had to do what about a year ago now is uh, it's been optioned by a company called Playground, uh, who did like Little Women and various different things, and um, they have a deal with Paramount to develop Stranger Times in um, the states. And there's just like I don't know what really what's best. It's it's a weird thing with TV and, and your your books. You don't really get kept up to date. I have two things that are currently optioned and they really don't tell you anything a lot of the time. But like I this there's actually writers in Australia. I think one of them wrote Vikings, the main writer, and she she wrote one was one of the writers of Vikings. But that she we I had a meeting with her and she said, uh, how does magic work in the world? And she's like I was like, well, they're, they're kind of discovering as they go. And she, yeah, but we're writing the TV series. We need to know. Uh, we can't discover it as, re- you know. So I had to actually sit down and write out a Bible for how the whole world works. If I'm entirely honest, initially I was going, oh, God, no, this is going to be a nightmare. And I loved it. It was, I literally started coming up with these things and figuring out my take on a kind of a magic system and a, and a you know, basic magic system and a, all the different races and, and stuff like that. And it gave me so many more ideas and it made the world so much bigger and realer to me that I ended up, you know, I've got so many ideas out of it. I can't wait to write it. But yeah, we are discovering the world as we go through it. But then I'm also going on weird tangents like book four is zombies. Effectively, there's a version of zombies 
which came out entirely of the fact I was looking for a name for another idea. I started looking at it because all the song titles, apart from the first book, they're all like this, this charming man, love will tear us apart, uh, relight my fire. And I literally was looking for a title for something. I, I texted me mate Gary and said, relight my fire is a very funny name for a zombie book, isn't it? He said, he said that or back for good. Uh, of the two <laughs> take that things. And I literally came up with the, I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I'm really proud of the book. I think it's a bit the best one in the series, the fourth one. And it literally came up with the whole idea for the book, essentially in about 20 minutes, because I was just inspired by what my version of zombies would be. Yes, but it was huge fun to write and I'm really excited to get it out. It's coming out in January, so I'm very excited about it getting out there. So, so well done. You've had your first game of D&D and you've produced your first um, role-playing supplement <laughs> well on the way uh, for the role-playing game. Well, I keep people saying, oh, you could be a dungeon master. And you're just like, God, I, that's kind of my job. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Cre- create the whole new word. Brilliant. Yeah, that's going to be... As it is, my agent keeps going about stuff like, do you want to make that into a job? I was like, no, because... I used to, like, generally, I was a stand-up comedian. I enjoyed comedy, became a stand-up comedian. I enjoyed TV. I ended up becoming a TV writer. I literally, my favourite sport is rugby. I ended up working for 13 years as an announcer for London Irish, uh, which is one of the rugby clubs and um, in Britain. And then, like, uh, my my boss was going, oh, this, you know, we could try and look and do a tie-in. My, my, my boss, my agent was going, there's a good tie-in. It was like, I, I don't want to make every hobby I ended up uh, becoming a job. <laughs> Having said that, I have come up with a very good idea for a Blood Bowl movie that I may end up pitching to them. Oh, I'm intrigued about that, but I'll let you uh, keep that hidden for now. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> written that down yet, so I, I don't know if it's going to be any good or not, but I might, I'm literally, I'm literally going to ring my agent on Tuesday and go, I know this is a long shot, but do you think Games Workshop want to do a Blood Bowl? It's not one of their most popular games, so I doubt it, but hey, never know. I think the appeal for um, the setting in terms of uh, role-playing games is that the way that it's set up with the investigative team uh, of characters is a a good device. And uh, we also enjoyed uh, Loon Day as a way of generating stories, talking about biscuits, which is one of this podcast's uh, favourite subjects. Yeah, I'll be honest, I did. uh, I was on, when it first came out, I was on Simon Mayo. And they ended up talking quite a lot about biscuits. It's like, I can't even remember which biscuits I said were the best ones. <laughs> I just sort of randomly said some stuff. And to be honest, now I'm on a gluten-free diet. I can't eat much biscuits. So it's really fantasy, <laughs> that part. But yeah, it's uh, Loon Day is is brilliant. And it it's, as a device, it's a dream come true because you just, uh, you generate so many things. It's a great way of getting information into the story as well and stuff. Because I get asked that a lot about, you know, writing comedy with, with various different things. And one of the great things that comedy can give you is because, you know, any kind of crime book, really almost any book, it's all about the author trying to slip certain key pieces of information in without drawing too much attention to them and stuff, particularly in crime. And the great thing with humor is, you can slip a key piece of information in. And if you find a way to put it into something that's humorous, people think that's the reason that conversation happened, where it's actually a great way of slipping something in. So when it works like that, it can be really powerful. But yeah, but Loon Day is, it's in the third book as well. There's a whole Loon Day thing and it just ends up being a lot of fun to write. It ends up becoming quite a big bit just because there's so much fun you can have with it. And it's a great way of having... It's like you can have little side quests come up. It's a great way for launching the B and C story because the books, if you probably noticed, is, I think certainly in the later ones, there's B and C stories. There's a lot going on in them, but which I kind of like, but it does make them 
challenging to write in the sense that my board here is like I had to find extra colored cards to show Poe's points of view because there's only four color cards in most books and most things and I needed more of them. So they're they're quite complicated stories that way. But Loon Day is brilliant for putting in little side quests, shall we say. And striking that uh, tone must be uh, difficult as well. Uh, you, know, you mentioned the humor and uh, there is a dark uh, investigative crime tone. So which... which um, supersedes the other so which which are you trying to balance the, the most and the comedy or the uh, crime dark well, crime to be, yeah to, to be honest um, I've always I've sort of said this in interviews quite a lot and I really feel strongly I don't think comedy is a genre at all I think comedy is a style of telling a story mm-hmm. um, and I think when people go wrong is when they're trying literally when they're honestly trying to be funny like uh, when I'm I'm just like even on Loon Day and stuff, I have people coming up and there's various different ideas they're presenting. And I want to sort of reflect the kind of Fortean world, if you like. They're all sort of variations on Fortean themes. You write the story. So you always have to respect the story and you kind of keep the the, uh, the stakes high and all that kind of thing. And then when they're in trouble, they're in trouble. And then the humor is sort of there as as flavoring. So it's always the humor has to serve the story and not the other way around. I think I, I was asked in a thing and I was given some advice to students and I said, if the only reason somebody walks into a room is because you have a joke about something that happens in that room, get them out of that room and burn down that house because you're in the wrong place because that's not how you write these things. You need to be telling the story. The reason someone goes into a room is because they have to be there. And it's always that you've got to keep that narrative drive, I think, otherwise, because I've read a lot of comedy, right, sort of comedy writing books and some of them are great and some not so much. And Ben Aranovich is is a good example where he has very funny bits in the books but they're always driving the story and it's i think that's really important and do you still uh, stand up are you a full-time novelist now full-time i retired in 2019 which as we make gas says is probably the finest piece of comedic timing in my career where <laughs> i gave i gave up just before everyone else had to stop for a year i my favorite revelation uh in here which i knew all along is that the devil's favorite music is enya i kind of knew that anyway well, that's that's weirdly that's kind of inspired by a comedian called Steve Hughes, who some of you might have seen on. He was on. A, there's a great clip of him on Apollo about top people being offended. If you've seen that, he's a big Australian dude. He's a, he's a metaler, um, but what's great is he's into death metal and Enya, and he's like, and he's always explained it to people. Like, oh no, so you don't know. It's exactly the same thing. They're just two sides of the same coin. And he's he's quite an intense guy, and he goes into these things about Enya. Um, that every comic on the circuit's heard at some point. So I think that was part of my little uh, tribute to him. It's been great spending some time with you this morning, uh, Queeve. So thank you very much for that. And uh, thank you very much to uh, Jonathan, who uh, actually connected us. So um, yeah, sure, thank you. Well, and, thanks uh, a lot. Lovely to meet you all. And uh, genuinely, I, 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 uh, I'm very excited to get into my role playing more and more now. So uh, I'm very excited to see where it goes. So thank you very much. I won't be hitting you up for recommendations and stuff because I definitely want to try a few different indie games, particularly the urban setting ones. I will definitely be uh, be hitting them up. So yeah, great. Crocobox. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. We're in the snug of the Las Agawe. Happy day, Blythe. Happy day, Dirk. Happy day. You know, sometimes I wish that I was in the vicinity of a May guy who was going to get me with a death ray and put me into a form of stupor, yeah. a, a kind of blissful yeah. ignorance. Yeah. So it's very appealing. It's a life goal, isn't it? Death, <laughs> it's a death ray, though, what? How does that make you happy? It's a death ray. Yeah, oh, I don't know. Well, yeah, we'll come on to that. <laughs> we'll come on to confusing plots later, won't we? Yeah. So we're going to talk about Children of the Stones, which was uh, first broadcast in the UK 
1977. Ran for seven episodes. It was on ITV, mm-hmm. produced by HTV, who obviously did Robin of Sherwood as well. Yeah, they did, didn't they? HTV, yeah. They were a real production house. They did a lot of those 70s TV serials. Did you watch them? They did like on at quarter to five, weren't they? Yeah, I used to watch all those things. I remember loads of them, yeah. It was Chucky. Chucky? Remember one called Raven? Remember one called Raven? I don't remember that one. That was again, the thing is, I was quite young at the time, I was a child. But I was quite. I, mean, I was young, I was a young child. I wasn't a teenager, so I must have been. I mean, I must have been about eight or nine when *Children of the Stone* was on. And similarly, a lot of those TV series of the seventies, I was quite young. Now, I mean, it's all a bit cloudy, yeah. and they may have been repeats when I was a bit older. But equally, I, I think some of them were just slightly beyond me from the age, and they're, they're still a bit confusing. But I do remember them being quite creepy. Yes. If I had. If there was one consistent element to it, it was creepy. Yeah. I remember Raven. I'm not sure if it was him. What's he called out of that camp? What's his name now? Phil and... Phil Daniels. I'm not sure if it was Phil Daniels and Raven. Oh, no. Right. I'd be wrong. But, but he looked a bit like him. And uh, Raven, yeah, it was like some weird thing with a coal mine in ancient Egypt. It was like a strange thing where he was some reincarnated something or... Or Aztec. Thing. I don't know text or whether it was he was he, he, I don't know yeah. I can't remember I can't remember that but, See, but I do remember it being creepy and weird I have very little memory of them I, to another stones, I remember elements of it mm. but like you say it's a bit fuzzy yeah. I have better memories around this time of watching the new Avengers because people mm. make a big deal about children's television but at that time there wasn't a watershed was there so we were watching TV programmes yeah. that were meant for adults yeah I think I think they're a bit blurred I mean Children of the Stones made a, quite an impression on me uh, I do remember it quite vividly and when I say vividly I don't quite remember the plot and we've re-watched it so some of it was like oh yeah okay I don't remember that but I do remember the general gist of it and I do think it made a, a marked impression on me because it was very creepy. The, the soundtrack, for example. Every, oh, every, yeah, all that weird... Oh, the Ambrosian singers. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. I do. You're doing a bit too well. <laughs> but it was it, quite remarkable, isn't it, that just the soundtrack can... Uh, creep you out you know it did it did mate it was a really creepy soundtrack mate. quite an impact on me as a kid but possibly if it, I, I'd go as far as to say the scariest thing I watched as a kid yeah I yeah. think when when it got into the 80s I remember things like Armchair Thriller do you remember Armchair yeah, Thriller yeah. and, and uh, they were they were scary I remember something called The Black Nun it was really, really scared. Yeah. None of that affair. That was all creepy. Hammer House of Horror. Hammer House of Horror was... The house that bled to death. That's right. Yeah. Charlie Boy. Charlie Boy, yeah. But they were a bit... They were a bit later. They were kind of very yeah. late 70s, almost 80s, so I was a bit older. But when I think back to being sort of at primary school, I suppose, Children of the Storms was possibly the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen. And when, when I rewatched it, I thought, why? Not that scary. But I think it was the soundtrack and... Yeah, it does got a kind of atmosphere of dread and there was something... The soundtrack, the soundtrack and I think some of the performances in it as well. Yeah. Uh, even though the script's a bit, a bit clunky at times. 
some of the performances in it are quite good. The guy who plays the villain, the main villain, he's he's quite good in it, isn't he? He's, he's kind of like a slightly domineering figure. Yeah, he incorporates yeah, yeah. he and he's. He's good, good actors, you know, and uh, Freddie yeah. Jones is in it, isn't it? Even the uh, ch- uh, children actors are good, aren't they? Pretty so, good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who plays yeah. Uh, Sandra, who has that like, kind of blank look that is terrifying, yeah. isn't it, when she is when converted. She's, when she's converted, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm yeah. sure we'll come, up, we'll come on to all that. <clears throat> and it's all down to, um, it was that time in TV when one person could influence the production so yeah, yeah. in HTV so it's known as uh, it's HTV Wales isn't it Harlech yeah. TV so it's around Bristol area yeah and they had like a workshop for kids and there's this guy who called uh, uh, Patrick Drongo and he was the production manager for HTV and they uh, he, he kind of he, he kind of had an attitude that children shouldn't be spoken down to yeah and this idea that actually they like being scared. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, isn't it? They do. Yeah. Kids, kids enjoy being scared. Because that's what—that's the thing that people say. Would these things be made mm. now? And I don't think they would because things are commissioned, aren't they, by committee yeah. and have to be tested yeah. and have to fit into particular things. But it was at that time of TV production where one person could actually say, yeah. "This is what we're going to do." people were given like a license to do what they wanted to do and that on the one hand led to some terrible rubbish but it also led to some brilliant stuff as well because it hadn't been created by a committee yeah you know which is one of the problems isn't it that once you get a great idea put it through a committee put it through a million different opinions suddenly yeah, what pops out the other side it's not very good no. a bit bland yeah that kind of thing like a bit bland and a bit knowing yeah. right? if it was produced now i think it'd be a bit knowing bit kind yeah. of a wink to the audience yeah. well this is the, the 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 reason why it it works is that it feels like it's all played for real yeah 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 that's it's based even though it's like ludicrous <laughs> Yeah. But it's kind of based, it make, kind of makes sense in the world that they're in. Yeah, and I suppose it's set in a real location, isn't it? It's set in Avebury, isn't it? Yeah. Which is a, is a village surrounded by by a stone circle. So yeah, it comes is, back to that liminal thing that uh, yeah. Paul was saying last yeah, time. Yeah, it does, yeah. Pick an area yeah. and just create your own history mm. for it. Yeah. Yeah, so in uh, this it's called Milbury. That's right. But, but yeah. it's quite clearly Avebury, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, as a kid, I didn't know what Avery was. Again, that, that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's called Milbury. But when I was eight, I didn't know what Avery was. I couldn't even Google it, could I then? So no. it just looked like a place that really was convincingly uh, a village surrounded by standing stones, which which Avery is. But yeah. it looked like that this is a real place, you know. Yeah. I didn't know I thought it was real, but it, but it, like you say, it's, it's kind of convincing. There's something convincing about it, yeah. In a way, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've got a prefab sprout game for you. Okay. Right. And these are just uh, TV series for oh, right, okay. HTV. Yeah. I think there's four of them, right. right? And out of the four, I've made up one. You made one up, okay? Yeah, and the rest of them were broadcast in the 1970s. Okay. All right, okay. Let me uh, do the first one. Okay. All right. You've got to pick them. You're not very good at this. It has to be said. No, we got this, but I liked, I mean, I was alive in the seventies and I watched the telly. So, you, so you I've got, got. I must have some kind of edge on this one. Okay. 
King of the Castle, 1977. Need a bit more on that? Go on, King of the Castle. Um, I, I think, I think, mm. I'll Go give on. you a thing. So Roland Wright falls down a lift shaft of a tower block and ends up in a fantasy parallel existence. That is King of the Castle. Falls yeah. down a lift shaft and ends up in a parallel fantasy existent world. Yeah. Like yeah. Narnia. Like a line the witch in the elevator. Yeah. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. Like the witch in the elevator. Going down. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> is that a real one or did I make that up? So I'll, All right. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, okay. Next one. Yeah. Next one is called Sky. 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 1975. A young time traveller with superhuman powers is stranded on Earth after running into a black hole. Okay. He's helped on his way home by three children. That's okay. Sky. Alright. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that one? Both are plausible. I, I think that's that's a bit more plausible than the King of the Castle. Wow. What's the fantasy world he's, he's drawn into in the lift shaft? What's kind of fantasy it, it, world it, it's is it? One, it's one that he is, is already constructed, I think. Oh, right, okay. And he finds himself falling into his own imagination. Right. Next one. Mm, go on. T- Time Tome. Time Tome is from 1974. And two schoolboys from Bristol discover a journal from a time traveller which reveals horrific secrets, but that he wants it back. Okay. My time right. travel right. wants it back. <laughs> that sounds good. You've made that up. That sounds quite good. Get onto HTV. Time Tom. Time Tom. Yeah. Time Tom. Okay. okay. Alright. The next one. Yeah. The Clifton House Mystery, 1978. A family move into a whole an old house which is haunted by a ghost of a soldier. So that's okay. the Clifton House Mystery, 1978. So which of those is the Ringo? Which is the one that I made up? I don't know. I thought when you said you're doing this, I thought this is going to be easy because I was alive at the time to watch the telly. So I thought we were watching New Avengers. I, I, I believe. Know, I, yeah. believe I, I believe that we've all got false. Mind you, 1974. I was six, yeah. possibly five, depending on when <laughs> when, when in, it was broadcast. So I, I yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd have been watching. Some of these things. Time Tom. Yeah, I don't be watching Time Tom because I would have been too young. Unless it was repeated, but again, they did do that, didn't they? Yeah. They did repeat things. I mean, that's that's the strange thing about these uh, programs, isn't it? Is that they were done. They're quite ephemeral as well, weren't they? Because mm. they weren't expecting us to be talking fi- about them now. Yeah, fifty years <laughs> later, going, oh yes, well, <laughs> this is what I think about this uh, particular program. Well, and, and I suppose what they didn't possibly didn't consider, like Children of the Stones, we, we you can buy that on DVD, you could buy it on watch it on YouTube. They, they wouldn't have considered that that would have been an option. Yeah. So yeah. they would have thought, this is going to be broadcast in 1977. I'll take and my fee. I'll take my fee, thanks very much. It'd never be shown again. <laughs> Possibly repeated in 1978, and yeah. that would have been that. Yeah. You know, use, reuse the tapes, wipe over it. like Which has happened, hasn't it? Lots yeah. of Doctor Who episodes have been erased. So, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> so, so, so what are you going for? Sky, King of the Castle, Time Tome, or the Clifton House Mystery? Which one are you going to say is my ringer? Clifton. Well, Clifton House Mystery seems a bit like the odd one out. 
and the, the others are all a bit, a bit over the top, sci-fi, fantasy, parallel universe, time travel and stuff, whereas Clifton Heights is about a ghost. Yeah. That seems plausible that some they would come up with a ghost story. So that, that seems odd, the odd one out, but at the same time, it seems completely plausible. So what are you going to me like that. I'm going to push you on. I'm like going to have to push you on this. People can't say you're looking at me when I say these <laughs> things like I'm an idiot. I, oh, you're kidding me, doesn't know. Look at him, doesn't know the stuff I've made. I I, 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 you I, could have made up any of those, any of them. I'm, I'm, I suppose the, the two that I smell a slight rat is Time Tone and Sky. Right, so which one are you going to go for? I don't know. Can I roll a d4? Yeah, go on. Okay. Um, I'll go for t- I'm going for I'm going for King of the Cap oh no I don't I don't know why'd you do this to me <laughs> why'd you do this you find it amusing but I don't know if I do anymore you'll have to do one for me oh, then... I know but oh. time Tom you make time Tom up for the first time you've got one right well done time Tom oh. is made up by me Whoa. the rest of them were on the, the well do you know what do you know what give it away what the use of the word Tom uh, I don't think people were I mean it was a word in the 1970s it's not a made up word but I don't think people were using the word Tom in the 70s I think I think that's been kind of came later yeah you know? well there's a liminal adventure for you isn't it a time Tom a schoolboy is finding a yeah. time traveller's diary mm. yeah they all seem they all seem ridiculous I was going to say they all seem made up they are all made yeah. up they're not documentaries are they yeah. but yeah so let's have a look at um Children of the Storms then so how do you summarise it well I suppose the main thing is is that it features uh, an academic and his son who are travelling into Millbrook yeah well they go they go there don't they because he's doing some research on the stones isn't he he's, he's doing an research. astrophysicist he's an astrophysicist and he's doing some research um, and he takes his teenage son to, to Millbury and the, the man who lives in the manor house the lord of the manor yeah. he's not the lord of the manor is he? he's bought the manor house hasn't he yes he's another astrophysicist isn't he who discovered a supernova didn't he yeah so he's a kind of quite famous astrophysicist so they kind of and, and bump into each other don't they? they they bump into each other but there's also kind of an indication that he may have invited him here and yeah, yeah. set it up yeah. because yeah. They, they come into this house don't they yeah. with uh, Mrs Crabtree that's right with a bacon egg and chocolate cake, which has got some kind of sinister connotation yeah. at some point, yeah. isn't well, it? Well, she, she, yeah, she's like a house. They live with her, don't they? She's like a kind of... It's her house, but she, it's like a kind of... I don't know, what is it? It's not a B&B, is it? It's just no, her house. They live at They lodge at her house, effectively, don't they? Yeah. And she makes, well, I would say, poor breakfast. <laughs> when it, They're eating like a scrambled egg or something, aren't they? Yeah. And it's just like a scrambled egg, and you think, it's, it's full English, here. You know what I mean? Oh, and Mrs. Crabtree's made us made some breakfast. Made us some breakfast. It's an omelette. It's a plain omelette. Come on. How much are they paying her? Yeah, and and we know that Adam uh, Brake is played by Gareth Thomas. Blake. Blake Brake, yeah. Yeah, he's played by Gareth Thomas. Brake Blake. Yeah. Gareth Thomas from Blake Seven. And we know he's an academic. And we know he's an academic because he's got that slightly... A fish's head, that kind yeah. of air that. Flash and flash and pompous, isn't it? Like really pompous. Yeah. Yes. Correcting everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And wearing his dog tooth uh, check jacket. Yeah, and a weird, a weird green. 
coat. I can't work out with it's leather or whether it's just some weird 70s fabric. <laughs> yes. But it does look like it does look like something. If someone said to me that coat later appears with some metal studs on it in Blake 7, yeah. I'd believe them because it's a weird coat, isn't it, that he wears at certain points. Yes. I can't get my head around that. And in his primary role is just to explain everything, isn't it? To yeah. his son, but also to us. Yeah. yeah, and also I, I think it's primary role to explain things, but also when, by doing that, he he's quite he's quite willing to believe the most ridiculous things, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. So his son will say something like, "Oh, maybe it's some kind of mind control," and he'll go, "Yes, maybe it is." And a normal dad would say, "Get out of here! What are you talking about? Mind control? Come on, go do your homework." Because that's what our dads would say. Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't go. Hmm. You could be onto something here. Mind control. Maybe through the supernova. Maybe through some kind of astral channel. Are you suggesting that the stones have some kind of magnetic power? Yes, Dad, I am. All oh, right. Go yeah. and do your homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they quickly established, don't they, that there's something amiss mm. in this place because. People say happy day. People are weird, aren't they? People are weird. People are weird. They are in a kind of blissful state. Highly intelligent, but at the same time, they're compliant. And the the, the happy day thing. And again, joking apart, I I remember as a kid, that was quite a good um, mechanism in the programme of making you feel weird because when someone said happy day, you knew. You knew then, didn't you? that they'd been turned it's a, it a bit like Invasion of the Body Snatchers isn't it that yeah. there are certain characters in it who were weird and say happy day and then there's other characters in it that they meet a minority of people who don't do it yeah. and share some of the same suspicions until the point that yeah. they drop they'll say happy day yeah. and you think oh right you've, you've gone you've been turned you're a you're a cultist or whatever you're a weird kind of yeah, yeah. and it's quite good and I do remember as a kid apart from the sound the soundtrack weird soundtrack which was creepy but I remember that being quite a scary thing because it does it implies that kind of mind control doesn't it that people who were like you are suddenly not like you yeah and that happy day that's all I have to do isn't it I only have to say isn't it yeah. They do, they'll do a scene with someone and they'll say, oh, well, yeah, see you tomorrow. And they go, yes, happy day. And you think, oh, right, oh, that's you. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I suppose it uh, harks back as well to the prisoners, doesn't it? That kind yeah, of clause yeah, yeah. to be seeing you. Be seeing you. Yes. Well, yeah. yeah, people who say that are, are sort of in some, yeah, some weird inner circle or something's happened to them yeah. in some way. Be yeah. seeing you. Yeah. 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 Quite sinister, happy isn't day. it? Happy yeah. day. It's quite sinister. Yeah. But yeah. it's a good, it is, it's quite good because it, it does I say as a kid it did it scared you because you thought what has happened to these people they were alright last last episode and now you know some of the happens to some of the school kids doesn't it that he goes to school yeah. and uh, the kids are very compliant and there's, there's a few kids that aren't but eventually those kids who he makes friends with there's a lad isn't that he makes friends with yeah um, there's a girl that he makes friends with Sandra but there's a boy he makes friends with and he a few episodes in, he becomes, he starts saying happy day, and you think, oh, we've got him. You know, we've got him, yeah. We've got him, yeah. It's quite, quite, See, quite this, spooky. It, it, this illustrates one of the things that I never liked about him, and I don't like about him now. And it's this thing that, when I was uh, a child, it seemed like all fiction 
and all television programme populated by people who talk like that. Oh, of course, yes. Well, they do. They do talk like that, don't they? Yes. yes. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. No, no, no one has a regional accent, do they? Apart yeah. from? Apart from? The one who's a bit rough. Yeah, there's a weird... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. lad who's a... Oh, right, you. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Or, or there's a character called Di who we might come on to played by Freddie Jones who lives in a cave yeah it's like regional accent put him in a cave yeah put him in a cave yeah, put him in a cave having, having met on the first one yeah. with a telescope he don't really need a telescope because <laughs> he's quite near to them he's <laughs> quite near he's so watching them in fact if anything the, the telescope's going to hinder yeah it's hinder because you're too near yeah, yeah. Everybody talks like that. Yeah, they do. There is that. Everyone's very. And that's what repelled me against all of these uh, yeah. programs. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't. I, they weren't relatable to yeah. me because they weren't. They posh. Everyone's I mean, like posh, aren't they? I know so. Oh, he's pouring himself a whiskey. He's always <laughs> pouring himself a scotch, isn't he, that fella? Yeah. Like Bre- Bre- Professor Dr. Brake. And Hendrick. Yeah. Gareth, Gareth Thomas. Gareth yeah. Thomas always doing it, isn't he? Yeah. You know, again, getting a whiskey. Yeah. yeah. You think, all right. And then they yeah. go to the pub, don't they? There's yeah. no one in the pub. So yeah. him in the pub having a whiskey, <laughs> got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I find that I find it quite amusing because, as you said earlier, nowadays in a kids' TV program, that would not be tolerated. No. It's a, a man, a character who did that now would have a drink problem. They, they, they'd only do it that in a kids' TV program if it's a drink problem. Was in Children of Storms. He's having a whiskey all the time, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Have a stiff whiskey, you know. Yeah, if it, it, yeah, if it was now that somebody looked to the screen as yeah. if to say, "Oh, hi, oh yeah, here we go." Another whiskey, <laughs> Doctor Break. Another whiskey. <laughs> so they come into town. They settle down with Mrs. Uh, Crabtree and uh, Hendrick, uh, the uh, mayor guy. They don't know he's the mayor guy. The, the druid. The yeah, head, he's just the like head honcho. Yeah. He introduced himself. Yeah. But they've also helpfully got this really rubbish picture, haven't they? That Matthew's yeah. picked up. Yeah, he's, he's picked Matthew's, he's Brake's son, has picked up this picture of the stone circle and these Neolithic people dancing around there. Some people are dancing, some people are running away. Some people seem like they've been turned into stones. And then there's a, there's a, there's a, a man and a boy running away, isn't Oh, there? foreshadowing. Yeah. But it's rubbish. It, yeah. it reminds me there's a Facebook you're not on Facebook are you? no there's a Facebook group called Terrible Art in Charity Shop that's definitely yeah so they have things like uh, Pink Panther having a fag on the toilet <laughs> <laughs> oh. but again, again you see that, that you come back to the you come back to the father-son relationship as you're implausible because if me and you had picked up a picture like that in the charity shop and said to her dad, can I buy this? Then he said, get out of here, put it back, that is rubbish, what are you doing with that? But he's got no buy it. It, yeah, buy it. Yeah, it, it must be a prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. And, and as they're running away on this picture, there's also a snake, isn't there? And the serpent yeah, there's like a serpent, isn't there? That, yeah. that plays a, a part in it as well. Not quite sure how, but it does. When Mrs. Crabtree sees it, she faints at the same collapses. And then wakes up, they bring her around with some smell insults. So make us tea, Mrs. Crabtree. He does say two hands a cup of tea. She's fainted. <laughs> and then he says, Oh, you're feeling better now, Mrs. Crabtree. Go and make us one of the terrible omelets. Yeah, more chocolate cake, please. <laughs> and another feature of this, another feature of this picture, 
is something in Latin which mm. Matthew is able to translate. Yeah, because he's slightly precocious, isn't he? He's, yeah. He's like a, yeah, by genius, he, isn't by he? By genius, a wannabe astrophysicist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he could, you know, he, he couldn't be the person his dad would have been if he hadn't hit the whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> the whiskey. What a terrible green coat. <laughs> and in Latin it says, I deny the existence of that which exists. Yeah. So that, that profound yeah. statement is going to have resonance. Well, is it? <laughs> it, it, it? It's sort of like something that a games master has made up on the spot, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. For the players to mull over between one session and another. <laughs> so they're, they're way into this society because it is a very close society. Yeah. And, as we've mentioned, some people are the happy ones. Mm. And Margaret Smythe and her daughter Sandra, yeah. they're not affected. She runs like the local museum. Yeah, like a, they have like a local museum about the, the for the stones, you know, obviously. Yeah. But again, no one ever visits it. <laughs> I mean, they've got a museum, like the pub. No one's ever in the pub, apart from him, knocking back the whiskey when he takes <laughs> Sandra's mum on a date. It? It's a bit of a, yeah, romantic, yeah. a romantic thing going on there. It's never quite developed. Yeah. Because um, he's yeah. a widower, isn't he? So, yeah. it, it, and they kind of connect, don't they? Yeah. No one in the pub, no one in the museum. Yeah. And the, the museum's area, I've been in places like that. Yeah. You know, where everything's like labelled with a little yeah. written. Yeah, and there's like a little model of the stone circle, isn't yeah. there? As it would have been in Neolithic times and yeah. all that kind of thing. And there's a body of this character called the Barber Surgeon, isn't there? Yes. The skeleton, yeah. the Barber Surgeon. Who, he's like found over in an amulet, isn't he? And he's yeah. crushed by one of the stones. And I think the suggestion later on is that the barber surgeon was kind of onto what was going on. The same thing was going on in the past. Yeah. The barber surgeon was onto it and was crushed under one of those stones. Yeah. And then there's a character, this character called Die, isn't there? Who lives yeah. in a cave. And there's a, there's a suggestion that they're not one and the same but they're mi- dies mirroring his yeah, that behaviour the myth, that the it's myth is repeating itself. Yes. yeah that they're locked somehow locked within these storms yeah stories repeat themselves yeah. and that's the, that's the thing that runs through history is kind of repeating itself so the picture the picture shows a ceremony that is kind of replicated later on or there's a suggestion at the end it's replicated but there's a suggestion earlier on that it's been replicated and of course, the, the man and the boy running away. The suggestion that it's it's him and his son Matthew and Drake that are running. So all, yeah. all the way through it, the suggestions that history has been repeating itself in some yeah. kind of strange cycle. The museum provides also some exposition in terms of the ley lines because the ley lines become yeah. significant. Yeah. That these are somehow some power cables that are. Power cables and the, the stone circle lies at the centre of them all. So the stone circles are kind of, yeah, either some kind of power source or generator or something like that, isn't it? And this realisation that there's 53 stones. Yeah. There's 53 ley lines. Yeah. And 53 people who populate the village. Yeah. If yeah. You, but it doesn't include Matthew and uh, Adam. Yeah. So it's supposed to be an amazing revelation, but they have all—they have made that bit up, haven't they? So it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you made it up. <laughs> you know. 
I mean, we, we sang, like Spanish it, the last 10 minutes or so, we've taken the mickey out of it a bit, haven't we? And you can take the mickey out of it, because it, of its time it was made, but I, it is quite, it is strangely watchable, isn't it? It's strangely, strangely watchable. Strangely watchable, and I think where it becomes really compelling, because there's the whole thing of, like, the kids uh, determining some of this, and that's what makes it interesting, yeah. because... Through adult eyes watching it now, you kind of focused on the adult story. Yeah. But really, what it does, it it's actually the children who are trying to break through it. The yeah. children who are actually seeing it for what it is and trying to push against it. Yeah. And finding yeah. Uh, they feel close to die, don't they? And yeah. it seems to give him the time of day because yeah. he's the one who's warning them. Look, once you're inside the store, and he, and he tries to never to, get. And he, yeah, and he tries to contact them, doesn't he? He tries to get the message to them through the kids doesn't it so Di kind of contacts Matthew and contacts yeah. the kids they're the they're the people he thinks he can convince because the adults aren't going to believe him and I think that's where it starts to become really convincing so you know like I said we have been mocking it a bit but at the moment where you realise that Hendrick is yeah some kind of sinister figure yeah his house is like a, an old church isn't it that's Outside of the ley lines, it's kind of the yeah. centre of like the It's like a manor house near the church, isn't it? And the church, there's no vicar. They make yeah. this big thing that there's no vicar at the church. So yeah. The suggestion that it's kind of pagan or something odd's going on. And, the, and they identify these and they watch these rituals where the happy people are in circles yeah. making the... Noises. <laughs> the weird noise, yeah. Yeah. And we've forgotten the most terrifying bit is where Adam touches the stone and he gets like the foreshadow of uh, yeah. the people who are yeah. in the ritual circle. Yeah. And he is clearly, um, what, what, what's revealed is that there's some connection with this supernova, this uh, part of Ursham. Major. Yeah, the, yeah, that's the gist of it, isn't it? That there's this supernova called black hole that is, yeah, been discovered, and it somehow links to the stone circle, doesn't it? And he, Hendrick, has a, an atomic clock. Yeah. This very advanced computer system. You know, it's advanced. It's got those uh, tapes that go backwards it's got and forwards. Tapes that go backwards and forwards. It's got flashing lights. It's a very advanced. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he's and he's monitoring yeah. the time of the time of when this aligns because that's the moment when he can convert people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is a thing as well in it where going for dinner at his house is yeah. the point of convert. They work out people get invited for dinner and they go and when they come back they're kind of saying happy day to everyone, aren't they? Yeah. Because there's a doctor, isn't there? And his son, there's a doctor and his son. Yeah, underutilized doctor. Under, underutilized doctor. He says no one's ever ill. Um, who's he, also got a dog, a dog tooth check uh, yeah, jacket yeah. so it must be very clever dog tooth check very clever that's what he's saying <laughs> isn't it yeah yeah, those kind of people um, but yeah he goes with his son doesn't he and he comes back saying happy day and then of course the big the big reveal is Sandra and her mum go don't they yeah. they go don't they and I was I was watching thinking, why are you going yeah. you've worked out that going's a bad idea what are you going for yeah. Oh, if the salt would go, well, it's funny that. Everyone who goes comes back is sort of brainwashed. Would you like to come for dinner? Yeah, okay then. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you saying? Why are you going? Anyway, they go and they get taken into this weird room, don't they? With yeah. stone chairs. It has a kind of slightly 
medieval or pagan. It, definitely a cult. There, like cult. It, it is a bit Cthulhu, isn't it? At that point, you think. Yeah. Obviously, at the time, you didn't think Cthulhu. But now you think, oh yeah, Cthulhu cultist, this guy, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, there is the atomic clock. So at a certain point, he the ceiling opens, doesn't it? And Hendrik. He, he turns his back. Hendrik yeah. turns his back. And then there's this flash of light, and that flash of light sort of seems to convert them, Sandra yeah. and her mum, into these blissful, happy day, not zombies, but these kind of yeah. slightly docile people. Um, and that's that's what happens, isn't it? Yeah. And then they go back, and of course, Matthew and uh, Matthew and, and, and his dad uh, go, oh no, you know, they've been converted now. Yeah. yeah. And then, then they're trying to escape then, don't they? Yeah, and the subtext is, is that this, it, this is a very highly conforming society. Mm. And that sense of a conspiracy. The conspiracy yeah. is yeah. is that the population needs to be docile. Yeah. And the, that Hendrik is, because of his superior knowledge and yeah. occult, is putting them in that position. And yeah. it, they all seem completely benign, like yeah. we were saying, but that seems with. And what it, what it reminded me of, and this might be a bit bit. I don't know whether this is a, a reasonable interpretation of it or not. What it reminded me of a bit, given the time it was made, was that thing in the seventies. There was a thing in the seventies where there were fears about things like communism, yeah, or the left taking over, or even the right taking over. So. There was a fear, wasn't there, of... And it exists today, I suppose. I suppose it's always existed. But I think in the 70s, there's this thing of, like, political dogma taking over, whether yes. it be left or right. I'm not saying it's about communism or about the fact... I, I the don't I, know if the idea that... I know there is that. Oh, it's more about the, uh, you know, the idea of the blissful pig. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, they, doesn't know yeah. it's going to be slaughtered. Yeah. So... Yeah. Yeah, but it's that idea, isn't it, that there's a, there's a society, you, you go to a place and gradually everyone becomes, almost like indoctrination, isn't it? Yeah. There is a sense of that, even though it's not indoctrination, it's sci-fi, and it's like, ooh, supernovas wiped your mind and made you docile. But there is that sense throughout it of people being converted to some kind of weird belief. And when they say happy day, you know they've converted to it. Yeah. Which... When you think of the seventies, there was that was a a thing, wasn't it? I mean, it leans heavily into the Wicker Man. Yeah, because, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, when they're doing the ritual, and there's like a hobby horse that snaps its uh, that the puppet snaps its uh, jaws in the same way yeah, as it does yeah, in the, yeah, the, 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 the Wicker Man. They do the, the Morris dancing, don't they? That again, yeah. is, is is portrayed as a weird thing where there's a guy who's Morris dancing. And they say, what's he doing the dance for? You know, he, he thought it was all nonsense the other week. He said it was a lot of old rubbish. And now he's a Morris man, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, dancing. Yeah, that kind yeah. Of converted to the cult. Yeah, the, the Morris dancers, clearly extras who uh, were in a different film to everybody else, weren't they? <laughs> Library footage. <laughs> anyway, as you say, they start to manufacture their escape because it is foreshadowed in the terrible art from the charity shop that they are going to escape. Yeah. Now, this is where it kind of comes off the rails a little bit, <laughs> it doesn't it? A bit, yeah. Don't quite yeah. understand how they manage it. But well, they, 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 they try and escape, don't they? But they can't escape. 
No, because they realise they can't escape. Because that's what Dai said, isn't it? Yeah, there's eat. no escape from this place. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're trapped in it, really. So you try and drive out, but you, you're not gonna escape. Um, so then they they do accept the invitation, don't they, to dinner yeah. at the manor house? You know. Um, or do they accept the invitation, or they just get like kind of end up there and yeah, kind of almost end up as prisoners, don't they? He, he traps yeah. them, doesn't he? Really. And it feels like predestined, doesn't it? That yeah. they have to yeah. go there, yeah. so they end up around the table. Yeah. So there's a bit of yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, I think they play they play dumb, don't they? They say, oh yeah, we'll have um, we'll have dinner, but, and they go to a room and they work out that he's got this atomic clock, don't they? And I think I think this. I know what you mean. What happens later is a bit bonkers, but I quite like this bit that they work out that they, they can alter his atomic clock and it, it'll go wrong because of the time. Yeah. I, I, that's quite clever. I quite like that bit. You yeah. Know? yeah. Good good play character. Good play character. You'd let that it? go. You'd yeah, let that you go. definitely would, wouldn't you? You think, oh, they can't beat him. They can't escape this place. They, they've not many options. And then the realisation, well, all we've got to do is make sure that he gets his timing wrong because it's all built on timing, isn't it? Yeah. And he gets his timing wrong. And of course, it, it all goes pear-shaped, doesn't it? Yeah. That was quite. That was quite clever. Admittedly, what happens at the end is a bit bonkers. Yeah. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? You know, because this, this, the, he, he does the thing. This, everyone kind of gathers, don't they? Yeah. And they sit at the dinner table, don't they? And the, the ceiling opens, and he turns his back, doesn't he? Yeah, because he can't look at the supernova, can he? Because otherwise he'll end up like that, won't he? He's yeah. swivelled. He's a swivelled. Yes, he's, he's a, swiveled. a stone-like pagan throne. But it's a swivel one, <laughs> very seventies, very seventies, isn't it? It's it's pagan, but it swivels. I, I'd be surprised if it didn't have like a cigarette lighter in the arm, you know, something yeah. like that. Yeah, very seventies. So he swivels round. Nothing happens. But you don't, you don't see it, does it? No, you don't see it because he turned his back. He has to turn his back. He doesn't see it, and then when he turns around, they, they act like numb. They, they act like they've been converted, don't they? Yeah. Of course they've not. And then they, they go outside, don't they? And they join the stone, the circle of people. We're then turning into stones, aren't they? Yeah. But of course it don't work because everyone needs to be converted. That's yeah. what it suggests, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they're not. So once once they join the circle, it breaks it, doesn't it? Yeah. And then he turns into an old druid, doesn't he? And screams. And yeah, screams. Screams, doesn't he? Screams. But, but comes back at the end because once yes. they leave, it, there's a sense that actually it restarts again because there's a new lord of the manor yeah. who's the same person. It's the same person. It's just history's just going to repeat itself. itself. Yeah. I suppose it's kind of this attempt to be a disconcerting ending because what it tries to suggest is that this will repeat until it is successful. Yes. So he turns up and he's been shown around the house. And he clearly has, Kendrick has no memory, does he? No, because he's a different character, isn't he? Is it called Jerome or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the same actor, isn't it? Yeah. But it's like a, yeah, and, and Dai's still alive, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he's not dead anymore. And he's, because they, they the, escape. The barber surgeon, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Because they escape, don't they, to his cave? Yeah. When they run away at the end, they escape to his cave. Um, and then when they wake up in the morning, he's, he's there and he's alive. He doesn't know who they are. He's no. quite annoyed with them, kicks him out of his cave, and they go back to the village. And in the village, the people in the village don't. They do remember them, don't they? But they, they don't remember the events. No. And they seem quite normal. And then they they just leave, then, don't they? At yeah. the end of it, is they leave, but 
they leave, but will they come back? Because yeah, that's the suggestion, isn't it? That yeah. They come back. Yeah, 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 yeah. It did. It did its job, and it's kind of well, well, well crafted. T- despite some of the clunky bits, well crafted TV for the seventies. You know. Oh. Should we have another pint now? Yeah, I think so. I'll even after that. <laughs> I'll get me caught. Well, we have got our caught. We actually left the pub. And mm. this is a couple of weeks later. Yeah. Well, we're getting our courts and having I'll a brew. I've been forever. I'll never feel the benefit when I leave. <laughs> We've been uh, <laughs> come back to the kitchen, haven't we? We're just having a yeah. brew and a break because I've come back yeah. from my holiday in that the fancy London. Mm. Feeling a bit skin tough. Feeling a bit skin. skin. Not burning a pound. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting used to that. In Manchester, nine pounds a pint. Where are you going? Nine pounds a pint. Not nine pounds a pint. Yeah, it used to be the case, isn't it? Where you can go to Manchester and we'd be paying three or four quid a pint. Yeah. Now it's about seven, seven fifty. And why? It is. You go and drink with someone else. Not drinking. I went. I went. Some places it is, but far. I'd say. Places we go, £5.50. Oh, no, I went, I went with a, a couple... I have got other friends, and I bought a round. <laughs> and it came to... There was, there was three of us yeah. came to 21 quid. Wow. And I said, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Check. <laughs> you sure? Sorry. In, in the old days of money, that would be a situation where you'd have a £20 note in your hand, and they'd say, £21, and you'd look at your £20 note, and think, What? <laughs> And in London, though, I went to see Oppenheimer mm. and the IMAX. Not the big fancy IMAX at the BFI, but it was near Swiss Cottage because that's where we were staying. And I didn't check the prices. I just had it worked out in my head how yeah. much it would be. Two tickets, £50. £50. That's cost you a bomb, hasn't it? <laughs> hey! <laughs> we sound like proper Northerners, don't we? Good grief, what? Anyway, this is the closing time chatter bit. What have you got as your closing time chatter for the podcast? My closing time chatter, the thing that has occupied my mind in the last few weeks, is restarting our Pirates of Drinex campaign. Mid-September, we're due to restart it, aren't we? It's always interesting, isn't it, when you do these long campaigns and you have a break. We have a bit of a summer break, don't we? Yeah. Kind of kick-starting it is always quite... A difficult thing to do. Not not that I don't want to do it, but getting your brain back in campaign mode. Yeah. Because it's quite a... It's a great campaign, and I'm sure at some point we'll talk about it in more depth on the podcast. But it is very sandboxy. You, you lot, as the crew, as the pirates, and you are supposed to do this, very specific about it, very clear about it. You do your own thing, don't you? So yeah. as we play it, the story kind of develops, doesn't it, in a very open way. But at the same time, from a games master's perspective, I need to have some idea where it's going and what things might happen irrespective of what you do as players. So it's that odd thing of getting my head back into it, planning a bit, but in the full knowledge that I can't plan too much because you'll immediately do something that I'm not expecting. The other thing that'll make it hard for you is the end of season one, if we were going to call it that. Yeah. yeah. It did have a sense of closure, didn't it? Because yeah. we returned to the point where we started, really. Yeah, yeah. 
And like Charles Dickens, we ended with a marriage, didn't we? Mm. I married a robot. You're going to marry a robot. A robot. She, that's rude, isn't it? She's a, she's an android, isn't she? She's a, a synthetic human. A synthetic human. <laughs> Not a robot. That's why you married our two deeds. <laughs> you married a monkey on wheels. Somehow it makes it sound less creepy. If it's creepier to say you've married a it's creepy to say you've married a synthetic human, but not creepy to say you've married R two D two. Somehow in my mind, that's in your I, head, that's I've reconciled. So acceptable to marry R two D because it's actually a stolen uh, pleasure bot, wasn't it? That yeah. I well, it was. She, wasn't she? Uh, well, let's let's be clear about this. I think you turned her into a pleasure bot, <laughs> and we're over honest. She was, she was a, you, you wrote, I think one of the ships that you pirated was a, a fashion mer- merchant. Because what you do is, you make, you've got lots of tables, hasn't it, for yeah. the kind of ships you encounter and what kind of cargo they've got. So we do it all randomly, which is quite good fun because it does generate stories in itself, doesn't it? Some of the cargo that you've got has been a bit bonkers at times. And you, it was, it was a fashion designer, wasn't it? Yeah. And that she was one of the synthetic robotic mannequins, wasn't she, for his fashion show? Yeah. And you stole that. And I think you... But shall we say, you upgraded her. We you upgraded, upgraded her, didn't you? We upgraded her, because I... You said we, you said we. You, your character <laughs> None of the others are really on board with it, are they? They're not, they're not. And it's because my character <laughs> is the only character who went to university. And he just didn't feel like he was being mentally stimulated sufficiently over those long haul jumps. Right. Yeah. So he had the intelligence upgraded so he could yeah. have an equal conversation. That's right. So she's, she's intellectually equal. That, that's correct. Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but all that, that's good. It's quite funny because all that is not in the campaign, is it? No. It's just completely. Yeah. But there was also a planet, wasn't there, this uh, tech world where it was possible for... Yeah, you went to tech world where there there's lots of scientists and they were able to kind of, yeah, enhance her and make her more more human than human. More human than human. Yeah, And exactly. because she qualified then as a sentient... Well, there's another, you went to another planet, didn't you, where yeah. robots had, uh, could it claim kind of equal human rights? And she yeah. sat the test, didn't she? They had a test and she sat the test and passed the test because she'd been enhanced. The, the Turing test. As, she, exactly. She, yeah, and she's on that planet, at least she has equal rights. No, and, everywhere else. But. And that's where we got married. So that's where we had this yeah. sense of closure. Yeah. And that is hard to think. Where do you go from there, really? Well, you're off to you're off to explore a mystery planet, aren't you? There's a new planet you've discovered, and you're off. You're off. That's where it will start. So there was a kind of cliffhanger where you yeah. you hit jump space to go into an empty parsec, didn't you? Where there but apparently the, is nothing, but you find a map suggests there is something there. But the way things are going, we might turn around and say, "Shall we bother now? We won't bother. Shall we go back?" And it's too late. I, th- I, I think. <laughs> That's the one thing I'm banking on. The one thing I'm banking on is you've gone into jump space, you are going to materialise in that space. Beyond that, anything could happen. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of it. As a campaign, it is, it is fantastic in that you, you can do that. And there's a lot of stuff in the campaign to support a GM so that you can do that kind of thing. But it is a kind of odd thing to get your head back into that space of thinking, I'm going to be running this for another six or seven months now. And... I need to have a skeleton plan in my head of what might happen at either end. 
because there are some things that happen in it. Yeah. There are some scenarios in it. But equally, balance that against the fact that you're going to do whatever you want, aren't you? Yeah. Because there are things last time that I thought you would do. I won't tell you what, but I thought you would do. But you've decided not to do them. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, mm. so you've got the probably the most... Sandbox is the term that gets used. Isn't it? Yeah. But it, we've got a lot of agency within that map to yeah. explore where we need to explore yeah. and to create our own destinies, if you like. Yeah, and create like alliances. You've made alliances yeah. with planets and all that kind of thing, yeah. And the other end of that is the Conan campaign that I'm running for us once a month. Yeah. And I think I've said before that those monthly campaign slots, they're hard to start each time. Mm. And this scenario, so it's um, the Shadow of the Sorcerer, so it's one of the difficulties uh, pre-printed. I, I, I bought it last year, last April. And they're running these things. I started at the beginning of this year. And when I read it, it's quite a distance between when I read it and when I ran it. And so each time I keep coming up to the chapter and seeing what's coming next. And I must admit that I've been wincing a little bit over the last couple of things. Because, I mean, I've used this phrase before, mm. but I wouldn't say it was a railroad, but a reaver of applying for a franchise. <laughs> Conan and the British Rail franchise. Because there's this middle section, it was all going well, weren't it? But then there's this middle section where things have to happen. Things have to happen and you, you, at the end of one of those sessions, you openly apologised to the other <laughs> all those players and said, I'm really sorry about that. That has to happen. And that's why it happened. And there was nothing you could do about it. Because there was a point, I think, during that session where... We started to do things. We're fighting a monster, weren't we? Yeah, we started yeah. to do things and thought, oh, come on, I'm not going to be able to can't be this thing. What's going on here? You know. But of course, yeah. afterwards, you said, like, that, that, that all has to happen. And it does have some narrative, it does have some mechanical bits to do those things, like yeah. the doom, doom spends. Yeah. But because of the way that you were playing it, I had to spend a lot of doom to activate all the things that the needed monster to needed to mm. happen. And it did feel like uh, it, and, and there's a couple. It felt a bit ridiculous as though you were spectators at your own uh, yeah. fight, really. Yeah. Um, but like I say, it's got to have that. It's got to have that for that transition period. It, it's got to have it to get you to the next spot. Yeah. But if I'd ever seen it ahead of time, I think I would have manipulated it a bit. But I've done that thing where I'm just putting laying the tracks. Literally, <laughs> literally laying the tracks, tracks. down for us. <laughs> <laughs> a chapter at a time, and when I reached that bit, I thought, oh. "I gave you all um, an additional permanent fortune point." And the, in the text boxes as well in, this, in the campaign, it makes these apologies to say, "Well, this is what Conan's like, Conan's story." But I don't think, I don't think, in this day and age, you can get away with no, no. imposing things. Also, I, I mean, stories are railroad. Because they're stories, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they're railroaded because they're written by someone. They're not a role-playing adventure. That, that's the, uh, th- there's the heart of the problem, isn't it, really? You can't, yeah. you can't railroad players and then say, oh, yeah, but the stories are like this, aren't they? It's, what do you mean? The stories are like this because they're stories. They're flipping stories where you're reading a story. I mean, it doesn't give you any choice. It's a story. And the other, uh, the other thing that it's got, 
And again, when I did the initial read-through, I didn't realise how important it was to it. It's bloody dream sequences. Yeah, there is a lot of dream sequences. And I don't like dream sequences. No, no, no. You don't, do you? You don't like them in films, you don't like them in games. No. You don't like them. And I must admit, I agree. Dream sequences are always a bit... They're always a bit odd. They're always a bit odd as well from a player's perspective, because you start thinking, if it's a dream, can I die in the dream? Or is it just a dream? Yeah. What should I do? What, should I do something and risk death as a player? But it doesn't matter because it's a dream. Or, even though it's a dream, will I die in the real world? I don't know. I don't know quite what to do as a player. It's, it's odd. It's always an odd feeling, I think, yeah. a dream from a, from a player's perspective as well. And it has the um, combined thing of being really heavy-handed in saying, this is what this dream's about, mm-hmm. by also being very oblique about, this is what this dream's about. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's the worst of both worlds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very obvious and very bleak exactly the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but the good news is, is that you, you get into the nameless island and you've got a bit more agency yeah. and a bit more fun. It's a good system and it's fun playing corner, isn't it? But it's fun playing corner, but the 2D20 corner is good because it does, it does generate the same kind of sense of, of corner of the fights and the things you can do do, do feel like yeah, something from the stories definitely decapitating somebody with manacles for example yeah we did didn't we yeah that was good yeah yeah, yeah it's good <laughs> anyway that's uh, the end of another podcast I think we can head out now ok I'll, I'll try and feel the benefit of this court for a long time <laughs> there is another bit thanks again to Keeve for spending the time with us at the book club and to Jonathan Cochran who set it all up for us. You're all very welcome to attend the book club. You'll find the details on thegrognardfiles.com. We have more guests coming soon, including Jeff Richard from Chaosium, Gaz Bowerbank from What Would the Smart Party Do and John Four, the creator of The Five Room Dungeon. Also check out the site to find out more about the online convention The Owl Bear and the Wizard Staff and the forthcoming plans for Grogmeet, our annual convention. The best way to keep track of all these things is to join the GrogPod Discord. Let me know if you want an invite. Lots of the Grog Squad have moved over from Twitter, which is losing its X-appeal to Blue Sky, and it's all very convivial at the moment. There is some debate over whether people self-identify as Grog Squad or not. If you listen to the podcast, you're part of the Grog Squad. Or you're not, you decide. There's no badge. In fact, there's very little to it other than something that I say here. It's not like a club like the Dennis the Menace fan club in the Beano. You don't have to join. In fact, I refused to join the Dennis the Menace fan club. It wasn't for me and Nasha looked like it was giving me the side eye. If you want to show your appreciation, then we would be grateful for your support on Patreon. Thanks to everyone that does or has done in the past. It's always very encouraging as well to get reviews and to know that people are passing it on to someone they know who may enjoy listening to this rubbish. I'm looking forward to the next episode. I think you'll find it a bit special. Until then, adios amigos.